Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Resurrection Sunday to you all. He is risen. Yeah, he is risen and he, he is king for sure. Today we're going to be going to Leviticus 25 together. If you want to join me in your Bibles. Well, today technically is supposed to be the last class in Leviticus, but I didn't make it on schedule. So the last class is actually next week, but most likely, most likely, so this isn't a definite sort of statement, <laughs> most likely I'm going to be up in room eight, and then Jeff Campbell will be down here teaching Luke. So you're going to have to pray about that decision, but if you uh, end up going to Luke class here, I plan to record the last Leviticus class next week, so you'll be able to get the audio on that. But if you're going to leave me, you know, that's okay, I'm going to be all right. <laughs> But you're welcome to, to join us in continuing through the book of Numbers. But we'll end Leviticus and then go into Numbers. As you, as we have been going through Leviticus together, you know, what are some things that have stood out to you or things like, you know, you, a lot of times people come to this book and they think of it as the book where their annual Bible reading plan ends but as you've gone through it, you know, a little bit and studied it, what are some things that uh, have been impressed upon your minds? Yeah, Leviticus is a book that it emphasizes holiness, and it's very uh, pictorial. And that you know, God he he gave a teaching model, which is why I try I tried to draw pictures of what that teaching model does. That you know, and it shows us that you know we're we're outside of the dwelling place of God, but His plan is to bring us inside by sending our sin all the way outside to never be seen again. But it's through a, a high priest who makes atonement for us from a God who actually makes atonement for everything. He ends up in the end dedicating everything to himself. And this is where we see the book is very much eschatological. Alora, what do I mean when I say eschatological? Okay, I, then I will explain myself. Eschatology, that means... The last, the, you know, the study of last things. So the eschaton is the end of the age, and ology is the study of. So we're talking about theology. What do you guys think theology is? David, what is theology? Yeah, because the the theo at the beginning of it—that's the word for God. That's a study of God and what He has revealed through His Word. 
So if I ever use some word and you don't know what it means, you can just raise your hand and ask me what I mean because uh, I'm here to communicate something to you to be understood. <laughs> so eschatology, when we're talking about we're talking about end times sort of things, which the, the application of eschatology is always hope. It's always to, to build hope in us, to say we know how things are going to end. We know that it's certain. We know that God is going to be victorious, and that, that changes our affections. So it's moved away from this passing world and looking to the next and everything entering into God's rest. Who, who has noticed that Leviticus is very much an eschatological book where it's very much forward-looking and hope? Anybody want to raise their hand and say that they noticed that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we see, you know, there's a high emphasis on the Sabbaths, that there's multiple of them. There's weekly ones, monthly ones. Uh, there's different ones that have. There's the Sabbath of Sabbaths that happens. And then, you know, as we get into, you know, chapter 25, you're going to see there's a sabbatical year, but there's also the year of Jubilee, which uh, ties into you have, you know, Sabbaths like all the time <laughs> and every 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 type of seven, seven weeks, seven months, seven years, all sorts of Sabbaths, but they're for everything. You know, the Sabbaths aren't just for people, but they're also for the land, which is going to be a focus we see in the year of Jubilee and then the redemption of land and God's slaves. Last week... Well, two weeks ago, it was two weeks ago that we were going through all of the festivals that the Israelites were given to teach them about salvation history. It was uh, an eschatology lesson for them. All of their holidays were tied into how God's plan of redemption would work. You remember the first thing is Sabbath. Everything needs to enter into God's rest. Then they would celebrate the Passover and unleavened bread combined together which would teach them about redemption and continual repentance, which then tied into first fruits or the Feast of Weeks or also called Pentecost as it's tied into this idea of 50 days, which is what Pentecost means. And what was the salvation significance that was taught through first fruits, weeks, Pentecost? There was a wave offering, stuff went up. Resurrection, it ties into what we're celebrating, especially this day and every Sunday. And then they would have the trumpets. The trumpets would blow on a certain, there would be a hundred trumpet blows throughout the day, which was to teach about God's people, I, I called it the roundup and retribution, but it was, it carries on these ideas of God gathering in his people, but part of gathering in his people is that he, he had destroys everything that's against him in his people. He brings retribution, you know, to the land and all of their enemies. And then you have the day of atonements, which we see there's multiple atonements, and that word doesn't always tie into the concept of, uh, like sins being forgiven necessarily, but it has more so the concept of things being dedicated to God, which you see there, there's atonements for the land and all sorts of people through all sorts of sacrifices. And the Day of Atonements was a, an annual celebration that they would have that, where they would celebrate the removal of all sin and the reset of the whole worship system. 
And it was teaching them that all things are made through, made new through God's atonements, but his atonement isn't just for personal salvation. It's actually, uh, it's going to be a cosmic redemption. He's going to uh, renew the, uh, the entire planet. So it's not just that he's going to, to save people and then just take them up to some place in the sky and eventually just dispose of the earth, but there's going to be a, a new heavens and a new earth where God's people are going to dwell on it. So God's going to come and reign in the place where Adam failed to reign and to make it a new creation where people don't, they never go outside of Eden ever. It won't be a possibility. So that's where we talked about the concept of the you know, tabernacle takeover. You know, the tabernacle's a picture not only of Eden, but the whole universe. But what happens is like the, the stuff that's in the tabernacle goes out to the people and starts consuming everything into it until everything on the planet is tabernacle temple. And there just isn't one anymore because everything's just that. Then after that, there was the Feast of Booths which would, well, you guys tell me, what was the significance of the, the Feast of Booths, Tabernacles? This is where people would go out to the REI garage cell. they get some temporary structures to live in. Yeah, residing with the rest bringer. Somebody has their notes. Oh, Susie's notes. Okay. That's good. We need each other like that. We need that kind of fellowship. We need other people who have notes. <laughs> so they would build these little temporary tents, tabernacles, to remind them that being in Egypt was temporary. They didn't get stuck there forever. God brought them out, but he's also going to bring them into a permanent tabernacle. And you're going, it was looking forward to God's people living in God's rest forever, which... You probably know this if you keep reading your Bible. They get all of this awesome instruction and teaching, and they just disregard all of it. <laughs> and it, the festival of the tabernacles, you just keep reading your Bible. It's like, when did they ever celebrate this? <laughs> like, when does this ever, when did they actually do all of this stuff? That, and, you know, they, they start to get ready for it in, in numbers. But you see, it's like they, they almost do a lot of things, and it's celebrated all the way out in, you know, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah when they, there's a return back to the temple being rebuilt. And so it's this picture, but they, the significance of it is this is temporary, but it's looking forward to God's going to build this kingdom where Jews and Gentiles are all going to come to this place and live in it because it's going to become the whole planet ultimately. So it, it ultimately gets totally celebrated at the very end of the Bible, you know, Revelation 21 and 22. Now, does it, you know, call that the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles? Well, one of, one of the ways we pick up on that is by the language of God dwelling. That's what tabernacle means, dwelling place. You say, you know, the dwelling place of God is with man. And you know, now that we've been going through Leviticus, you probably hear that a little bit different. It's like, well, that's the thing that we've been waiting for for so long. It's like, well, here's the fulfillment of uh, the Feast of Booths. And then all of this climaxes into the Jubilee year, which is what we're going to look at in chapter 25 today. This is the last festival. We're coming toward the, the end of all of the content of the, the covenant at Sinai, right there at the foot of the mountain. This whole book here of Leviticus, of the ones who God has called, takes place in the period of a month. This is a month of stuff here in Leviticus. And their final festival is this year of Jubilee where they celebrate God's coming rest and release through redemption. So everything else is pointing toward you know, you need this rest, and God's going to do it through uh, redemption, repentance, resurrection, rounding up people, retribution, removing things, resetting things. But you're going to have to be released 
into that somehow. You're going to have to be redeemed into that, and that's going to happen with everything on the entire planet. It's going to involve land and God's slaves. And you're going to see when we read this chapter that the, the Jubilee is very much tied to atonements. It's like, well, how does this all happen? Well, God atones for everything. He dedicates everything to himself. That's how we're brought into this jubilee. It's the Hebrew word yobel, and it's a, it's, it would be tied to like our word of jubilation or happiness, but it's, it's one that comes to the earth and it never ends. So what we're going to do is read Leviticus 25 in its entirety, and then I want you to tell me what strikes you the most in the chapter after I read it, and I'll try not to, to emphasize the points that I think are emphasized <laughs> in my reading, and you can, just, you can tell me after I read it what jumps out at you in Leviticus 25. Yahweh then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I am giving to you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to Yahweh. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its produce. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to Yahweh. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord from your harvest you shall not reap, and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be for food for you and your male and female slaves and your hired man and your foreign resident, those who sojourn with you. Even your cattle and the beasts that are in your land shall have all its produce to eat. You, all, you are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely... 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus set apart as holy the fiftieth year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own possession of land, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow. You shall not reap what grows of its own accord. You shall not gather in from its untrimmed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce out of the field. On this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his own possession of land. If you make a sale, moreover, to your companion or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not mistreat one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your companion. He is to sell to you according to the number of years of produce in proportion to the extent of the years you shall increase its price and its proportion to the fewness of the years you shall diminish its price. For it is the number of crops it produces that he is selling to you. So you shall not mistreat one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am Yahweh your God." You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments so as to do them that you may live securely on the land. Then the land will yield its fruit so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. But if you say, what are we going to eat on this seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our produce? Then I will command my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth the produce for three years. So you shall sow the eighth year and eat old things from the produce, eating the old until the ninth year when its produce comes in. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but sojourners and foreign residents with me. Thus, for every piece of land of your possession, you shall provide for the redemption of the land. 
if a brother of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his possession of land, then his nearest kinsman redeemer is to come and redeem what his brother has sold. Or in case a man has no kinsman redeemer but recovers his means and finds sufficient payment for its redemption, then he shall calculate the years since its sale and return the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and so return to his possession of land. But if he has not found sufficient means to return it to himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee. But at the Jubilee it shall revert that he may return to his possession of land. Likewise, if a man sells a house for habitation in a walled city, then his redemption right remains valid until a full year from its sale. His right of redemption lasts a full year. But if it is not redeemed for him within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the walled city passes permanently to its purchaser throughout his generations. It does not revert in the jubilee. The house of the villages, however, which have no surrounding wall, shall be considered as open fields. They have redemption rights and revert in the jubilee. As for cities of the Levites, the Levites have a permanent right of redemption for the houses of the Levites, which are their possession. What therefore belongs to the Levites may be redeemed, and a house sell in the city of their possession reverts in the jubilee, for the houses of the cities of the Levites are the possession among the sons of Israel. But pasture fields of their cities shall not be sold, for that is their perpetual possession. Now, if a brother of yours becomes poor and his means with regard to, your, to you falter, then you are to sustain him like a sojourner or a foreign resident that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest nor your food for gain. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If a brother of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave's service. He shall be with you as a hired hand, as if he were a foreign resident. He shall serve with you until a year of jubilee. He shall then go out from you, he and his sons with him, and shall return to his family, that he may return to the possession of the land of his fathers. For they are my slaves whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold in a slave sale. You shall not have dominion over him with brutality, but you shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the nations that are around you. And also you may acquire from the sons of the foreign residents who sojourn among you, from them and their families who are with you, as for those whom they have begotten in your land. They also may become your possession." You may even give them as an inheritance to your sons after you to receive as a possession. You can use them as permanent slaves. But in respect to your brothers, the sons of Israel, you shall not have dominion over one another with brutality. Now, if the means of a sojourner or of a foreign resident with you become sufficient and a brother of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a sojourner who resides with you, or to the descendants of a sojourner's family, then he shall have redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or if one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him, or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. He then, with his purchasers, shall calculate from the year when he sold himself, when he sold himself, to him up to the year of Jubilee, and the price of his cell shall correspond to the number of years. It is like the days of a hired man, that he shall be with him. If there are still many years, he shall return part of his purchase price in proportion to them for his own redemption. And a few years remain until the year of Jubilee. 
he shall so calculate with him. In proportion to his years, he shall return the amount for his redemption. Like a man hired year by year, he shall be with him. He shall not have dominion over him with brutality in your sight. Even if he is not redeemed by these means, he shall still go out in the year of Jubilee, he and his sons with him. For the sons of Israel are my slaves. They are my slaves whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. Our gracious Lord, we pray that you would illuminate your word to us so that we could see the instruction that is here, the salvation instruction and hope that is found in these pages impress upon our minds the things that you would teach us about yourself and how to live for you and your glory. Amen. So as I tried to read that chapter very plainly, what things jumped out to you or stood out to you within that? Sabbath rest, definitely an, an emphasis on that. Yes, from the back of the room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you got a good teaching outline there with, you know, property and people. You know, God redeems both of those, you know, property and people, but where, you know, who does all of this stuff belong to? You know, that's an emphasis in there where the, the Lord says, the land is mine, it belongs to me. <laughs> uh, this was, you know, the word of God perhaps rebuking and correcting some people and they're thinking on that, but also is that you guys are my slaves. You belong to me. So you see the property and people belong to God. Land and man belongs to God through redemption. So you see lots, lots of things are starting to tie together. And all of this was this practice that they would have would teach them how salvation works but it would also teach them how salvation's going to work out in history with God redeeming both land and man. Any, any other things that, that stood out to anybody else beyond what is mentioned there so far? All right, so we think those answers sufficiently cover the emphasized things. Looking in that first section, those first eight verses on the sabbatical year, verse three, six years you shall sow your field, six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its produce. Well, where did all the produce come from? All those six years. And you see, a lot of these things are looking back in the past, over the past six years, who, had, who has provided for us? Right. Well, what are we going to eat on the seventh year? I mean, who's going to provide for us on the seventh year? The same one who owns everything and provided all the, the other six years. That's who's going to do it. Which, what's being taught to them is everything they have belongs to God. Which teaches us everything that we have belongs to God. And what, what do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. And in the seventh year, the, the Sabbath rest is for the land. It's, and it's a Sabbath to Yahweh. And it was a way for the people to acknowledge that they actually trust in him. So the, the faith wasn't just something that they spoke about, but they lived it. And when it came to the seventh year, uh, it was kind of like a litmus test. Uh, do you really trust him? Do you trust him enough to rest in him and to actually believe that he's going to provide for you all year like he said that he was going to do? 
Do you really believe that God is good and he'll keep his promises? Do you really actually have faith in him? And this was not just something that they would learn about and be hearers only. They were also to be doers. And this faith that they would demonstrate by giving the the land a sabbatical year would also be an expression of love toward one another. And verse 6 says, The Sabbath produce of the land shall be for food for you and your male and your female slaves and your hired man and your foreign resident, those who sojourn with you. Even your cattle and the beasts that are in your land shall have all its produce to eat. So then it's like, well, what about my family? They're going to have food. What if somebody from a foreign country comes and visit? They're going to have food. What if you have some people who work for you and they get hungry? There's going to be food. Uh, what about my cattle and my beast? They're going to have food. <laughs> Pretty thorough. But you see, they were going to have enough to even share with one another to show that you're seeing these concepts of faith, hope, and love all tied together. You know, they're trusting in God. They're hoping in his future provision, which brings them to express that in loving others by sharing the stuff that God has given them. So this is where we see a teaching of eschatological hope. Lucy, what is eschatological hope? What am I talking about? Do you know what eschatology is? Ask a Laura. <laughs> yeah, hope in the future. It's a future hope. You know, it's a, you know, when it comes to the, the end of the age, we can trust God to provide for us all the way to that point and then beyond that point. Like, we are going to enter his rest. Uh, he is going to provide that we have land and produce from it. It's going to be like going back to Eden again, which is what this seventh year celebration was. It was like you just go back to Eden and God's growing the food for you. And it's just, it's there and things work, but it was a way to express contentment in God's goodness. What you can see that, you know, Eve didn't have that. It's like, oh, you can eat from every single tree on the planet, but why would God hold out on this one right here? And she thought, well, I guess I am kind of keeping his commandment still. I mean, the best I understand it, if I partake of it. But, and he wouldn't really judge me because he's, he's so good that he wouldn't judge me if I, he wouldn't want to withhold this fruit from me. And plus, it's pleasing to the eyes. It looks like good fruit, just like everything around here does. But she wasn't expressing contentment in his goodness, you know, as in that moment of deceit, there was a discontentment, not trusting that God would provide for her out of his kindness. I want you to think about this ourselves. It leads us to examine our own hearts and see, are, are we content in life? Are we content with the, the plans for the year, for, for every week, for every month, for the spring, the summer, the fall, winter, seven-year plan, our 49-year plan. Some of us can't make 49-year plans anymore. But, see, you know, are you really content, you know, looking forward in what's happening and believing God's always going to provide? And I can trust Him with how, how things are, are changing and shaping up in my life that He... He means to do good to me. And because I know that he's good and he, he works all things together for good, I can be content today. I can be content when I think about the week, the month, the seasons, the years. Every season of life, he's going to carry me through it. This Sabbath year, also within you know, the national structure and government of Israel, it it prevented them having a sort of class system where you just have rich land owners and ruined debtors that could never get out of debt because they were oppressed. Because the land would always revert back to the family that God gave it to at some point. So it's like, you know, if you were to take out to, to have some, something like a mortgage where you're paying for the land by 
working for it. It always had to be one that, that could be accomplished before Jubilee. But you couldn't have something where you enslave somebody where they had a debt that went beyond the Jubilee. And if you did, well, it just goes back to them and <laughs> you don't get that, that payment that you were trying to uh, brutally uh, press upon somebody else. Now, when it comes to the year of Jubilee, that picks up in verse 8. You hear that it's a proclamation in verse 10. It says, you, you shall thus set apart as holy the 50th year. So I think 50th year, what does that tie to in your, your mind? Another festival. Yeah, Pentecost or Feast of Weeks. Yeah, why does it have to have so many names? I'm going to just call it one thing, but that's just how it is. First fruits. It was tying it back to that, that they're going to set these things apart as holy in the 50th year and proclaim a release through the inhabitant to the land to all its inhabitants. So you hear that. You remember first fruits was, you know, about resurrection and people being raised into a new life in him. We saw how that was tied into the church in Acts chapter 2 that on Pentecost, God had a first fruits of a people who were raised in Christ who was their Passover. You see all the festivals connected and uh, salvation history working out just as God taught that it would work out in order. But this was something that was proclaimed and it was proclaiming a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It says, it shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own possession of land, and each of you shall return to his family. So you see those two pieces tied together of land and family, and what was taken in the garden is being pictured as given back. You know, the land that was stolen, it's given back. The family that was there that was taken away, it's given back. Now, God's teaching that he's going to carry out a, a just recompense. Now, when we think about that sort of concept, one of the things that would, it would protect Israel from was having some arbitrary, absolute human ruler which would you know, take over the land and people as if those things belonged to that particular ruler, which is how the year of Jubilee tends to get misused. Uh, there's a lot of talk about this within the uh, social justice movement. People declare a year of Jubilee where civil government takes back the land and people and they'll distribute it equally through the practice of socialism to everybody. What we see in God's laws, he, uh, that was not the point of the Jubilee, <laughs> that you would have some sort of figure that would stand in God's place and say, actually, the, the land and the people are all mine, and I'll distribute it as I please and tell you what to do with it. Well, this protected Israel from Socialism, totalitarianism, communism, these sort of things. See, all the land belongs to God. You know, this is shaping their worldview. God owns all of these things, ultimately, and we see it as the land is his. And all the people are, are, are his, and we want to treat them in a way that honors him, the one who gave us these things, which means we want to have just business practices. So... You know, if you were a mortgage lender sort of person, you know, you're not going to give somebody a hundred-year loan or to enslave them to a debt that you know that they actually couldn't pay it off. Uh, but also within this, seeing that this land was always a temporary possession to the people, this would train their hearts to not give it to the land because they think, this is going to go away. This is temporary. All of this stuff in this world is passing away. But what about the person who thought that they were doomed to poverty? They thought, you know, I could never be a landowner. 
I could never work myself out of this situation that I find myself in. Well, it's a, wait till the year of Jubilee. You're going to get some land. You know, God has given your family some land. You're going to get it. So you know, see, it, it would do two things in you know, the heart of the, the Israelite believer. One, that they wouldn't be too attached to their land. And two, they would recognize they're going to have some land someday. They're not going to be stuck in their poverty forever, forever which is teaching them about salvation ultimately. You know, their business practices were to also be a gospel witness. Now, when it came, you know, to emphasizing, you know, how, you know, business practices, verse 17, it says, you shall not mistreat one another. Well, why should you not mistreat one another? You shall fear God, for I am Yahweh your God. Now, if you look over real quick to Colossians 4.1, you see this same sort of concept taught there as well. Colossians 4.1 says, Masters, show to your slaves what is right and fair, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Where did Paul learn that? From his Bible, Leviticus. See, when we're looking at these things, there's multiple applications. And that's, you know, one, we're learning about God and his salvation. We're learning what God's character is like, how his salvation works. We're also given a worldview on how to view uh, government, politics, economy. We're given a worldview on how to view work. And then there's also personal moral application, how, you know, there's a certain way we're to do our work that, that demonstrates God's character and his plan of redemption and how we do it. So that when people say, well, why, why do you do accounting that way? Why do you do lending that way? Why do you do farming that way? Say, well, because all of this stuff belongs to God and he's given us a law which shows his kindness to the world and teaches of us of his redemption. That's why I do things this way. And all of us should be able to do that with any job we have. We should be able to know, well, what does God teach us? You know, about what does his law teach us about my job and how does it relate to being a gospel witness in it as well? So that the way I think about my job turn into an evangelistic conversation very easily because I understand how it ties in to God's redemptive plan. In verse 18, one of the things I want you to, to note here in well, verses 18 and 19 is how man, man and land is inseparable. Man's morality and the yield of the land are tied together. So listen for that. You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments so as to do them, that you may live securely on the land. Then the land will yield its fruit, so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. Every person who's created in the image of God gets this. They understand that man's morality is tied to how the land produces. Now, we're probably familiar with, you know, the green movement. People that want you to recycle or people say, don't touch the land. You just got to leave it alone and it'll be more productive, which is actually, you know, very different than, you know, be fruitful and multiply and subdue and have dominion and cultivate. But you see, people get that because they're made in the image of God. They see that there's this connection to, you know, our morality and the land yield, but what does this particular text do in shaping our worldview and viewing you know, man's mor morality and God's land? Does weather and land stuff all just happen incidentally and by chance? And you think about... You know, in the, the beginning of your Bible, you read that, that man only exists in three relationships. He exists in relationship to God, the land, and other people, right? 
And he says, now, what if you misuse the land? Exile. You go, you move out. So you see how man lives in, you know, morally before God affects what happens with the land, where he's living, if it's yielding or not. Uh, you see this also in another event, Noah and the flood. Israelites, Canaanites, Israelites in exile, in which now, right now all of God's people are in exile. But there's a, a direct relation in creation, like how we live affects what's happening with the land as well. But we see that we want to honor God and recognize that the land belongs to Him and we want to be fruitful and multiply with the land in a way that glorifies Him, but we also are sowing in hope. Now, a lot of us are doing this. We're beginning our gardens. We always sow in hope. You put these little seeds in the ground. Like, how in the world is this little thing going to turn into some food later? But it does. Not all of them. A lot of Sometimes you lose a lot of stuff, and it's sad. Yeah, but we always sow in hope because we don't know what's ultimately going to come out of it. But we sow, we hope, and ultimately God is the one who provides the yield. But you see that there's this built into creation, this reaping and sowing principle, which is not just tied to the land, but all of life. But you know, you, you reap what you sow. So if you sow to the the flesh, you'll reap the flesh. You know, if you sow anger in your relationships, you're going to reap that anger back on yourself. But what if you sow to the Spirit? You sow one of the, you know, part of the fruit of the Spirit, you know, patience. What are you going to reap? Patience. You sow kindness. What are you going to reap? Kindness. You know, God has this, these sort of principles built into His creation, which leads us to see that we want to be faithful stewards of everything. We want to be faithful stewards of property he would give us, but also the person that he's given us and made us to be as well. In verse 23, we read about the redemption of the land. Verse 23 is one of those big verses that really jumps out in this chapter, I think, where he says, "...the land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently." Well, why can't you sell it permanently? It says, for the land is mine. <laughs> you can't sell my stuff permanently because it's my stuff. It says, for you are but sojourners and foreign residents with me. That was one of the things that really stood out to me in this. So you guys are sojourners and foreign residents with me. So you see that he's the with God. He's with them. And this isn't the place that we're going to live forever. <laughs> we're, we're going to go somewhere else. We're, we're strangers and foreigners here. The, this world and its ruler rejects us. But I rule over him, and I'm going to redeem everything in this world and bring you into a new heavens and a new earth as new people with a new heart. Well, how is he going to do that? Well, it's through redemption and a kinsman redeemer, which makes you think of the book that should have been titled Boaz, but instead we call it Ruth, but it's more so about Boaz. He's, you know, the heroic kinsman redeemer picture of salvation, and he, he redeems a Midianite woman of all people. There's all these Gentile people and the, the Israel family and women to top it off, which is... Uh, I find that amusing because, you know, the Jews, when you get in the New Testament, didn't, didn't like either. <laughs> they didn't like Gentiles or women. He's like, well, that's how you people were born. <laughs> that's why you're here today. <laughs> uh, the, the genealogy of Matthew emphasizes that, especially, by the way. So you can just read it. The Bible's funny. There's some funny stuff in there. And that's okay. It's okay to laugh sometimes. A lot of it, it's mostly serious. But there's some funny stuff in there like that. So it's, it's good to laugh a little and uh, to, to have friends with a sense of humor. <laughs> well, this idea of a kinsman redeemer is, you know, it, it ties into 
the redemption of a people who would fear God and they're brought to look at the past and the future in this redemption and having brothers who would live together with them. And he's often reminding them of, you know, the great redemptive event of the old covenant, which was the Exodus, uh, that being brought out of the land of Egypt, which, you know, it has its parallel in the new covenant at the cross. You know, it's the big redemptive event that we look back to. And so verse 38 says, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So I said, well, why should you live like this? Why should you live redemptively with like redemptive farming practices, with re- redemptive mortgage lending practices, you know, with redemptive land and man relationship practices? Why should you do this? Because I am Yahweh your God. I made everything. Everything belongs to me. It's my stuff, and this is the best way to use it. And he points them to the past, saying, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he points them to the future to give you the land of Canaan. So here we see the tying together of protology and eschatology. David, what is protology? Very good. It's the study of first things, like we think of like a prototype or something. But you're looking at the, the before and the after. You know, you're looking at the first things and the last things, but you're seeing they're all tied together. You can't just look at the last things. You can't understand the last things if you don't understand the, the first things. And these people were being taught that they were recipients of God's grace. It's like, well, how, why did you come out of Egypt? Because God was gracious to you. Why do you have this freedom? Because God broke the old slavery and brought you into a new slavery. Well, why do you have these possessions and use them like that? Well, because God has graciously given to you. Like, you didn't work for them. You didn't earn them. He just decided to, to give them to you to, to show the entire planet that he's kind, to make you a kingdom of priests that would instruct the nations concerning what your God is like and how he teaches you to live and how slaves to sin can become slaves of righteousness, how people can be set free from a burden of works and trying to earn things from from God to rest in the kinsman redeemer, the Christ who already just owns all of these things. And he graciously gives those to gives them to those who don't deserve him. And he does all of this to glorify himself, to reflect his goodness and grace. Now, the year of Jubilee throughout the scripture, you don't always read the word Jubilee when you come across it. You just have to keep up with the concept and see it happen. And I want to take you on a a little bit of a, a biblical trail to see how this develops. And in doing that, we're going to go to Isaiah 61. And while while you're getting there, I'm going to just read the last verse of Leviticus 25. It says, For the sons of Israel are my slaves. They are my slaves, whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. This is tied in. God owns man. He brings them out. He he delivers captives. You can think of it like that. Now listen to Isaiah 61. It says, The Spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted for he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners. Now what does that sound like? The year of Jubilee, right? Verse 2, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, 
to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a headdress instead of ashes, the oil of rejoicing instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may show forth his beautiful glory. Why, why is the year of Jubilee happen? Well, it's so God would carry out his salvation of destruction and deliverance and plant a people in a land. He would plant a people in a garden to show forth his image, to show forth his beautiful character and will in the world. Now, you can keep your finger there and turn to Luke 4, 17 to hear how this develops a little bit. Luke 4, 17. Actually, I'll back up to 16. And he, that is Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So what is Jesus saying here? festival in the year was he tying into? Jubilee. So he's tying people's minds and it's like, well, what is Jubilee about? Well, it's about people entering into God's rest and being totally released here. Yes. Well, in what he's saying, he says, I'm proclaiming it. He's like, here's the good news proclamation of it. So it's like, you know, look to him in fulfilling it. But you also see he doesn't, he stops at a certain spot and he doesn't say something else that hasn't been fulfilled yet. So he says, I'm fulfilling this, but there's this other piece that's going to be fulfilled later. And what is that? If you look back, whoever kept their spot in Isaiah 61, where did he leave off and what did he not say? Yeah, the day of vengeance. So it's like, well, when is that? I mean, that's, you know, what the disciples were really thinking. It's like, vengeance is going to come upon Rome. He's like, it's not yet. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be raised. They're like, well, you can't do that. You know, ki kings don't die, they rule. You're going to just come and rule. You're bringing the day of vengeance, because that's what this Bible passage says, which they were right, but they were wrong on the timing of it. So you see, Jesus is proclaiming, Himself as the fulfillment of the one who brings God's rest and release to God's people, but he also leaves them hanging and looking forward to there's a day of vengeance that's still coming, that's going to be announced in the future. Let's look over at John 8 as another connection into the year of Jubilee. Than 830. I'm thinking of 831, actually. 831. It says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's seed, and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. 
So he was here teaching them and showing him how he's the fulfillment of Jubilee. They would have understood, well, when are people set free? Year of Jubilee. Uh, but you also had to be a slave in his household and to be a son in order to be set free. So it shows there's going to be some that are outside, but there are going to be those who were brought inside. A more familiar passage to us that we've looked at before is Romans 8.18. If you want to look over in that, which ties together concepts of the Jubilee there as well, Romans 8.18. So here you're going to see land and man looking forward to God's rest and release, redemption. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. Now, the book of Romans very much follows the logic and teaching of the book of Leviticus, and you can hear and you know, understanding more of the Jubilee, you hear this connection of man being set free to land being set free, and the land is groaning and waiting for that to happen because it recognizes that God's redemption doesn't just bring salvation to, to people, but it's a deliverance of absolutely everything on the planet. It's a cosmic redemption that Jesus accomplishes, and it has this forward-looking in hope. You know, in hope, we were saved, looking forward to to God dedicating everything unto himself within the creation. So in bringing all of these things together, this shapes our worldview and recognizing that the land belongs to God. So we think about it and use it within economy in a way that honors him and shows his redemptive gospel message through it. Uh, we recognize that God has his slaves, which is his redeemed people that are to display that he's been gracious to us by what he did on the cross for us. And we look forward and hope in that what he's going to do in redeeming everything on the planet. He's going to get rid of all of the enemies and the thorns and the thistles, and we're all going to be farmers together. It's going to be amazing. And so, in the meantime, we want to show a picture of that and stewarding those resources with a biblical worldview. We want to be productive for God's glory. We want to use the things that God has given us to share it with one another so that it increases unity among us, so that there's harmony around the cookie plate. So you're not thinking, well, there's one left. Maybe I'll just ask them if they want to split it in half. And it's like, no, you can have the whole thing, and I'll get you a glass of milk, and I'll do your dishes, because God's redemptive gospel changes everything in life. And then you'll uh, amaze the person who thought you might be being selfish about that little cookie between the two of you. This reminds us also, you know, think of what the Lord taught in the Sermon on the Mount, it's like, because God has always been our provider and always provided faithfully for us in the past. Why do you need to be anxious about tomorrow? If he's provided for you for six years, why won't he provide for you on the seventh year or in 49 years? It's like he's always provided for you. And also you, you think about debts being forgiven within the year of Jubilee. Does that make you think of anything in the Sermon on the Mount how Jesus taught us to pray 
Yeah, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You see that idea of forgiveness is all tied up in that, in this concept of the year of Jubilee. It's like we want to show people the gospel and how we uh, forgive other debts of other people. And all of this looks forward to Revelation 19.11 and beyond. 19.11 is where you have the great white throne judgment where God deals with carrying out retribution to all of the enemies in the land to bring rest to both his people and his land, which is all of this is a good reminder that life isn't just about work and money and food and entertainment. Uh, we exist to be a kingdom of priests. We exist to to make known our God in absolutely everything that we do, from our vocation to our relationships to what we do on Sunday and Monday through Saturday and January to December and year to year. And we do this in looking forward to the hope that we're going to be delivered from all laborious toil in all debts. So I'll close us in prayer here and you guys can be dismissed. And next week, Leviticus classes, most likely, probably up in roommate. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the teaching of the year of Jubilee, which you have fulfilled in part in being the proclamation and the one who accomplishes it in your first and second coming. We thank you for the forgiveness of our debts. We thank you for the certain hope we have in you coming again and bringing release of the curse to the land and to man so that we would live in your land as your people under your blessing and rest forever. Thank you for this eschatological hope. Help us to think upon it more often. Help us to remind one another of it, that we would edify one another in this truth and the certain hope that we have, and may it manifest itself in how we love one another and sharing the things that you have given us so that we as your disciples would be known by our love for one another and our hope in Christ, that we would be mindful of how we can think about his redemption and live it out and make it known in absolutely everything that we do in our lives to your glory for you are worthy. Amen.